Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. Time Magazine, Harper's Magazine, Essence Magazine, The Baltimore Afro-American Newspaper, Yahoo News, and we're going to get things started off with a remembrance of a great athlete and activist. The title is Jim Brown, Cleveland Browns and NFL Legend Dies at 87. It was published by the Cleveland Plain Dealer at its cleveland.com website on May 19, 2023, and was written by Scott Patsko. Jim Brown's first game as a pro was a Wednesday night exhibition opener against the Lions in 1957. It wasn't a splashy debut. Brown wasn't mentioned until near the end of the next day's recap in The Plain Dealer. Jim Brown played briefly, but the All-American from Syracuse wasn't able to shake loose, reporter Chuck Heaton wrote. His second exhibition game provided the splash. Brown rushed for 96 yards in a win against the Steelers. It was a 48-yard touchdown run in the third quarter that made its way into the next day's headlines. When Brown got back to the sideline after the play, Coach Paul Brown simply said, You're my fullback. Brown's legacy only grew from there. When Brown died Thursday night at 87, the legacy had come to encompass more than his time in the NFL, from which he retired as the league's all-time leading rusher and soon became a Hall of Famer. It branched out into social activism and acting and also included a complicated personal life. Statues outside Cleveland Brown Stadium in Cleveland and Syracuse University remain, symbolizing his glory days as a football player. I think it goes without saying he's not only the greatest Cleveland Brown of all time, but I think arguably the greatest pro football player of all time, Brown's owner Jimmy Haslam said during the 2016 statue unveiling in Cleveland. But a combination of Brown's desire to do more than play football and his fractured relationship with the then-Browns owner Art Modell led to his retirement from the NFL after nine seasons. He was just 29 at the time and the reigning league MVP. I had a full dose of football, Brown told Sports Illustrated in 2015. It gave me an opportunity to express myself on a personal level. As a black man in America, there were certain disadvantages to my existence. Football gave me certain other advantages. It has been a major part of my existence. In his post-football life, Brown acted in more than 50 films and television shows. He also embraced social activism, famously taking a lead role in the Ali Summit held in Cleveland in 1967 to address Muhammad Ali's refusal to serve in the Vietnam War. Brown later founded the American Empowerment Program in the 1980s, targeting at-risk youth and young adults in inner cities, including those involved in gangs. It's a program that reached other countries and continues today. Brown's post-football life was also marked by allegations that he abused women. In 2000, Brown served nearly four months in jail stemming from a vandalism incident involving his wife's car. All this made Brown's legacy difficult to pin down in his later years. He is fabled and flawed, one of the most complex figures in sports history, wrote Cleveland.com's Tom Reed in 2016. His greatness on the gridiron is undeniable. 
His history off the field is complicated. Brown was born on St. Simon's Island off the coast of Georgia. His father, Swinton Brown, was a boxer who soon left the family. His mother, Teresa, worked as a maid in New York and left him in the care of his great-grandmother for many of his early years. Brown joined his mother in New York when he was eight, so he could attend the mostly white and upper-class Manhasset High School Brown's mother had him stay with a co-worker, a butler, who lived across the street in Manhasset School District. We lived on the dividing line, Brown told Manhasset students during a 2013 speech at the school. She wanted me to come here. She used a little trickery. Brown earned 13 letters in five sports at Manhasset. While excelling in football and lacrosse, he also averaged nearly 40 points per game in one season of basketball. And according to a New York Times profile, there was talk of the Yankees signing him to play baseball. Ed Walsh, Brown's high school football coach, told Newsday that Brown probably had more drive to succeed of anybody I have ever coached. Whatever he did, he wanted to do better than anybody else. Brown was recruited by more than 40 colleges, but chose Syracuse at the urging of Ken Malloy, a family friend and attorney. Malloy pulled money from Manhasset businessmen to pay Brown's first year of tuition. Brown's football career at Syracuse started slow. He rode the bench behind players he believed were less talented. At one point, Brown became discouraged enough to consider leaving Syracuse. But an injury during his sophomore season opened the door and he finished second on the team in rushing. He became the team's top running back in the next two seasons. He was a first-team All-American as a senior, rushing for 986 yards, third most in the nation, and 13 touchdowns despite the Orange men playing just an eight-game schedule. He finished fifth in voting for the Heisman Trophy. Brown lettered in three other sports at Syracuse, lacrosse, basketball, and track, and was the university's Athlete of the Year in 1956-57. He even qualified for the 1956 Olympics after placing fifth nationally in the decathlon. Brown was also a first-team All-American as a senior lacrosse player. Lacrosse is probably the best sport I ever played, Brown told the New York Times in 1984. He remains the only person inducted in both the College Football Hall of Fame, 1995, and the National Lacrosse Hall of Fame in 1983. His time at Syracuse also led to the induction in the U.S. Army ROTC Hall of Fame 2016. Brown was commissioned as a second lieutenant through the Army ROTC while at Syracuse. In 1957, the Browns were in need of a new identity. The 1956 season had been the franchise's first without legendary quarterback Otto Graham, the first in 10 seasons without reaching a league championship game, and the first with a losing record. The Browns selected Brown with the sixth overall pick of the 1957 NFL Draft, and he provided the identity by leading the league in rushing yards, 942, and total touchdowns, 10, and was unanimously voted Rookie of the Year. The Browns returned to the NFL title game that year, where they lost to the Lions. Brown dominated the NFL for the entirety of his career. He led the league in rushing in eight of his nine seasons, was voted to the Pro Bowl every year, was the first-team All-Pro in eight seasons in the Associated Press NFL MVP three times. 
Brown played in three NFL title games with the Browns, including 1964 when the Browns defeated the Colts to win what remains their last championship. I've never seen a back who has been endowed with all the things needed to rush the football, Hall of Fame wide receiver Paul Warfield said in the book Legends by the Lake. You'd see the film and see the things the guy did, and it was incredible. It was almost like no other human being could do them. Along with his athletic ability and powerful running, Brown was also known for his intelligence, often going over plays with his linemen to make sure everybody was on the same page or redirecting players because he knew how a defense would react. Another Brown trademark was the slow walk back to the huddle. In between plays, if you're going to be a star and I'm going to run you 35 times and you get up in between plays and jump up and down and run back to the huddle, that's not conserving energy, Brown said in 2019. If you're going to be a star, you're going to have to carry the load. You're going to have to be intelligent enough to conserve that energy in between plays because it doesn't count what you do in between plays. And you get prepared for the next play and produce with the next play. So, it was really simple for me. I was conserving energy. Brown retired with 12,312 rushing yards, an NFL record that stood for 22 years. The mark was broken by the Bears' Walter Payton 10 years after the league expanded to a 16-game season. The NFL had 12- and 14-game schedules during Brown's career. Brown never got hung up on where he ranked among football's great players. And I've always said that I've never tried to make myself be the best. I want to do my best, Brown said in 2019. And if you think that's the best, it's okay. But I'm not going to be hard on that. Brown retired from the NFL on July 14, 1966, six months after the Browns lost to the Packers in the NFL title game. The decision came amid a dispute with the Browns' owner, Art Modell, who wanted Brown to leave the filming of the movie The Dirty Dozen in London and report to training camp. Modell was fining Brown $100 for every day he didn't report. In an interview with Sports Illustrated a day after his announcement, Brown said, I could have played longer. I wanted to play this year, but it was impossible. We're running behind scheduled shooting here for one thing, I want more mental stimulation than I would have playing football. I want to have a hand in the struggle that is taking place in our country. And I have an opportunity to do that now. I might not a year from now. Brown was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1971, his first year of eligibility. Brown's acting career began with a supporting role in the 1964 Western Rio Conchos, which he filmed during the 1964 NFL offseason. He appeared in more than 50 films and TV shows during his acting career. That list includes more than 20 films from 1964 to 1980, the later part of that stretch including a number of roles in blaxploitation films. What I want to do, Brown told film critic Roger Ebert in a 1968 interview, is play roles as a black man instead of playing black man's roles, you know? And I don't make a big thing out of my race. If you try to preach, people give you a little sympathy and then they want to get out of the way. So you don't preach. You tell the story. I have a theory. An audience doesn't need to get wrapped up in blackness every time they see a Negro actor. And a movie doesn't have to be about race just because there's a Negro in it. 
While he is best known for his role in The Dirty Dozen, he also appeared in the first interracial love scene in 100 Rifles with Raquel Welch. His most recent role was as himself in the 2014 movie Draft Day. While he was still playing football, Brown helped form the Negro Industrial Economic Union, which was later called the Black Economic Union, a self-help entrepreneurial organization for black athletes. In 1967, the BEU's Cleveland office served as the backdrop for the historic Ali Summit, a gathering of socially conscious black athletes to discuss Muhammad Ali's draft refusal during the Vietnam War. Brown, along with Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, then known as Luau Cinder, and others discussed whether or not to support Ali, which they eventually did. The principal for this meeting, of course, was Ali, former Kansas City running back Curtis McClinton told The Plain Dealer in 2017. The principal of leadership for us was Jim Brown. Jim's championship leadership filtered to all of us. In 1988, Brown founded Amer I Can, spell capital A-M-E-R, dash I, dash capital C-A-N which works with inner-city youth and young adults to improve life skills, self-esteem, and self-reliance. The program took Brown into prisons to rehabilitate inmates and into meetings with gangs to help members get on a different path. One of the concepts that I teach in the inner cities is the responsibility of self-determination, Brown told the undefeated in 2017. You are responsible for yourself. It is not your mother, your father, the white man, the politicians. It's about you. That philosophy showed up when NFL players followed the lead of Colin Kaepernick and used the national anthem prior to games as a time to protest social injustice. While Brown said he supported Kaepernick's decision to protest, he didn't agree with taking a knee during the anthem. See, first of all, I'm an American. That flag is my flag, Brown said in 2018. The things I've overcome in this country allows me to make me a better person. I don't think that we should take knees and protest instead of standing up for our flag. I think we should outwork our problems as a family, and that's what I would advocate to my children, to all the young people I work with. Brown was accused of and investigated for violence against women numerous times during his life. Six incidents between 1965 and 1999 were either tried before juries or didn't make it that far because the women decided not to pursue charges. The list includes a 1968 incident during which Brown's then-girlfriend, Ava Bon Chin, was allegedly thrown from a second-story window. Brown said she jumped after a domestic dispute. Chin later told police she fell out of the window. In his 1989 memoir, Out of Bounds, Brown wrote, I have also slapped other women. And I never should have, and I never should have slapped Ava, no matter how crazy we were at the time. I don't think any man should slap a woman. In a perfect world, I don't think any man should slap anyone. I don't start fights, but sometimes I don't walk away from them. It hasn't happened in a long time, but it's happened, and I regret those times. I should have been more in control of myself, stronger, more adult. Brown served nearly four months in jail in 2000 after refusing to accept probation and counseling for damaging his wife's car with a shovel. Brown's relationship with the Browns in his retirement was rocky at times. 
He was dismissed from his role as executive advisor by then-Browns president Mike Holmgren in 2010. He was brought back as a special advisor in 2013 and remained in that position until his death. The Browns erected a statue of Brown outside then-First Energy Stadium in 2016. Definitely long overdue, former Browns coach Bill Belichick said at the time, In my opinion, no greater player in professional football than Jim Brown. But on top of that, Jim's a very special person. He's a great friend and he's a great leader. I respect and have had great admiration for the things that Jim has accomplished throughout his life, his career on the football field, lacrosse field, but more importantly, off the field. There will always be many ways to remember Jim Brown. In his later years, Brown's view of himself was focused on one aspect. My life has not been sports, Brown said. I've been an activist all my life, worked with the change of humanity. I have a little I might be able to contribute, but to help break down the taboos that we had in this country and to deal with freedom, equality, and justice for all human beings, and to appreciate the goodness of any human being, regardless of their race or their gender. So that's who I am in my heart, not a football player, an athlete, but a humanitarian. That was the obituary titled, Jim Brown. Cleveland Browns and NFL legend dies at 87. It was published May 19, 2023 at 10.19 p.m. at the cleveland.com website, which is the website of the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper. The next story in today's program is about agriculture, and it comes from Yahoo News and its news.yahoo.com website. The title is, How Black Farmers Are Making Inroads into the Cannabis Industry. It was written by Chanel Chandler and published May 16, 2023. Black farmers are looking to the budding cannabis industry in the U.S. to spur generational wealth in the black community after decades of grappling with the hardships of being locked out of the agricultural industry and land ownership while being on the receiving end of the detrimental effects of cannabis being classified as a drug. This is a plant that has been tied to the very fabric of not only the nation, but to black America as a whole, Jason Brooks, co-owner of Green Toad Hemp Farm, Georgia's first black-owned hemp farm, told Yahoo News. As a second-generation farmer, I'm so proud to be part of growing this plant that so many of our people have been incarcerated behind. Now we get to do it in a legal way. Brooks' lineage in America, like many black Americans in the U.S., dates back to the slavery era during which people were brought from Africa to cultivate land for crops whose yield became the backbone of the U.S. economy. Black people have always been a people that have been great at mastering and tilling soil, Brooks said. One of the few things that we did of the land for years was grow hemp and make hemp products. In January 1865, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, Union General William Tecumseh Sherman signed Field Order 15, in which the U.S. agreed to provide 400,000 acres of southeastern U.S. land previously owned by members of the Confederacy to black families. But after the land was returned to Confederate owners later that year, many black farmers turned to sharecropping, renting shares of land largely from white landowners and plantations giving them a hefty portion of the crop yield. 
There is heavy discrimination against black farmers, especially in the Bible Belt, where a lot of people that were sharecropping lost millions of hectares of land, Brooks, whose grandfather was a sharecropper, explained. They got deals that were predatory, and a good portion of the family that I have has lost all their farmland. The population of black farm owners in operation in the U.S. has dwindled dramatically from nearly a million farmers in 1920 to currently representing less than 50,000. Black farmers have been subjected to a long history of discriminatory policies by entities like the Department of Agriculture. These include being disproportionately rejected for federal farm assistance and lending, which caused many black farmers to forego land ownership and farm foreclosure. To this day, very few black farmers get the resources and the knowledge that they need in order to go forward, Brooks explained. The U.S. has started to pay off loans for black borrowers under the American Rescue Plan Act, answering to lawsuits that cite years of racial discrimination against black farmers. As noted by Yahoo News partner The Grio, some states are also granting medical cannabis licenses to black farmers who have been left out of previous application processes. Generations were essentially cut off from the lifeblood of their family business, Brooks said. Now, we the children and grandchildren are trying to rebuild that legacy. The government does have a huge responsibility to bear on that to make sure that we can produce and provide products to this country because this is our home and this is what you do inside of a nation like this. Black farmers say cannabis legalization has created inroads for America to right the wrongs inflicted by the residual effects of slavery, Jim Crow era laws, the mass incarceration of black people from the Reagan era of war on drugs, and their lockout of the agricultural industry. Marijuana is now legal in 22 states in Washington, D.C., and medical marijuana is legal in 38 states plus D.C. According to the Marijuana Business Factbook, by 2024, legal cannabis sales will increase 181% from $38 billion in 2019, to about $130 billion annually for the U.S. economy. But the Marijuana Business Daily reported in 2021 that 81% of cannabis business owners and founders were white, while black people made up just 4.3%. We need reparations in the spaces of cannabis, Brooks emphasized. To be able to grow and cultivate, we need priority contracts set aside just for us. We need tax-exempt status so that we are allowed to repair ourselves and be made whole. When the Farm Bill was signed into law in 2018, hemp, defined as cannabis and derivatives of cannabis, with no more than 0.3% THC on a dry weight basis, was removed from the definition of marijuana in the Controlled Substances Act. Many black farmers took advantage of this new opportunity to grow hemp as a legal crop. Brooks' father-in-law, Reginald Reese, founded the Green Toad Hemp Farm in Meadow, Georgia, in 2019. His venture began after trying to find opioid alternatives to deal with his chronic back pain. He really understood that our body has an endocannabinoid system, and this endocannabinoid system needs to be fed, explained Brooks. It's in every person's human DNA. He started experimenting with CBD and found that he did get great relief and didn't have any nasty side effects. So he decided to dedicate his life to spreading awareness about the healing powers of the cannabinoid system starting his own farm. 
The family now works about 30 acres of farmland to produce cannabis products. Brooks said that Green Toad Hemp Farm has also partnered with Georgia Southern University, which has a program for students to research the use of hemp for human use, while keeping the production of it eco-friendly. Farming is literally 22nd century stuff, Brooks said. They have drones out now that will survey the land. So the advancement into this space, along with AI technology and robotics, is going to make farming even more efficient. Brooks described the farming industry as ripe for revolution and change as it invites academia and younger generations into the farming space. We see YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram pages of black people still farming, Brooks said. This is something that's encoded into our very DNA and souls. However, black farmers in the cannabis industry still face significant barriers like access to land, markets, resources, capital for operation, health insurance, loans, legal and administrative obstacles, and obtaining crop insurance as a cannabis farm. If you gave us the resources to take care of our communities to finally getting paid what we're supposed to be getting paid, I guarantee you'll see a severe decrease in the issues that plague the black society. But Brooks doesn't want consumers to fall into the pit of buying from black-owned farms just because they are owned by black farmers. The hope is that when people see the effort that we put into our products to make sure that they compete or are even better than some of the products on the market today, we'll break down that wall where people will stop seeing us just as black folks with farms and seeing us as Americans who have farms. And nothing breaks down a barrier quite like sharing a gut blunt. That was the article, How Black Farmers Are Making Inroads into the Cannabis Industry. It was written by Chanel Chandler and was published at news.yahoo.com on Tuesday, May 16th, 2023 at 3.50 p.m. Central Standard Time. My next reading is a commentary. It's from the Baltimore Afro-American and its Afro.com website. The title is, The Obesity Crisis is Not a Hopeless Fight for Black America. It was written by Benjamin Chavis and published May 13, 2023. Whether we accept it or not, obesity continues to be a complex chronic disease that kills thousands of Black Americans every year. Indeed, nearly half of Black Americans live with obesity, so we cannot afford to ignore this national emergency any longer. The public discourse around weight loss that has taken over recent headlines has entirely missed the mark. Our mainstream media and social media and content providers are all either dissecting whether a movie star used weight loss medication or analyzing whether these medications are safe to take, even though they're FDA approved. The fact of the matter is that we are squandering a critical moment to focus on the deadly disease of obesity and missing the opportunity to save thousands of lives, particularly black lives. Within the next seven years, researchers anticipate that half of American adults will live with obesity. This is a personal health burden and a public health crisis, and we should talk about it as such. Turning the narrative around on this disease and on black wellness overall is critical to stemming obesity's growth. The National Newspaper Publishers Association, a trade association of more than 250 black-owned community newspapers and media companies from across the United States, has consistently been the voice of the black community since its founding 83 years ago. 
I serve as the organization's president and CEO, and right now we're calling on our members to elevate the conversation on the obesity crisis to one that clarifies the facts, shares reliable resources, and advocates for impactful changes for the benefit of our community's health and longevity. We can address obesity in a way that gives hope because this is not a hopeless fight. To start, it's vital that we correct the misinformation. Too often, people don't know that obesity is a chronic disease and a long-term illness with multiple contributing factors outside of a person's control. Environmental circumstances, inherently racist health care programs, poverty, and genetics. In cities across the country, like Washington, D.C., where nearly half the population is black, food deserts and food swamps have become the norm in black communities. This makes it nearly impossible for many black residents to eat well, even if they wanted to. This is to say, many people cannot access one of the key tools of combating obesity, a healthy diet, because of factors outside of their control. It's also important to note that obesity is a complex disease that may require more than diet and exercise. Our understanding of the disease has changed drastically over the years thanks to scientific research and advances. Where diet and exercise are not enough, some people may need the extra support of anti-obesity medications to fight the disease. Just as many of us take medications to manage hypertension, diabetes, or cholesterol, conditions you may have inherited, medications for chronic weight management may be needed as well. Further, combating severe obesity may even require bariatric surgery. Chronic diseases are treated with a range of treatment options, and obesity is no different. To be clear, the perception that people who live with obesity just need to take better care of themselves is false and dangerous, as it prevents thousands from receiving or seeking the care they need. Societal weight biases strain the mental health of people living by obesity, prevent people from living their healthiest lives, and contribute to our country's stagnant health care policies that exacerbate obesity's disproportionate impact on black communities. From less access to quality health care to the exclusion of anti-obesity medications from Medicare and most Medicaid and general insurance coverage, our health care system underprioritizes the well-being of black Americans. And we've learned from history that until we make our voices heard, this crisis will continue to be brushed aside. Dr. Fatima Stanford, an expert on obesity, noted that we have been living through three pandemics, COVID-19, racism, and obesity. We must prioritize combating the obesity pandemic with the same energy we use to combat COVID-19 and racial injustice. Our lives depend on it. That was a commentary from the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper titled, the Obesity Crisis is Not a Hopeless Fight for Black America, written by Ben Chavis Jr., published May 13, 2023, and I found it at the afro.com website. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner. My next reading is from Time Magazine and its time.com website. The title is... Life Expectancy Proves How Far Black Americans Have Come. It was written by Andre Perry and published November 23, 2022. In August 2022, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that over the last two years, Black Americans' life expectancy declined to about 71 years old, 
six years lower than their white counterparts. National disparities in life expectancy can represent the permanency of racism, offering little reason for hope. But in Manassas Park, Virginia, and Weld County, Colorado, the mean life expectancy for black residents is 96, a national high among black citizens by county. Black people are living in their 80s in larger Democratic jurisdictions like Montgomery County, Maryland, and smaller Republican districts like Collier County, Florida. My colleague Jonathan Rothwell and I reported hundreds of places that exceed commonly held expectations in Brookings' recently released Black Progress Index, an interactive tool and report developed in partnership with the NAACP that provides a means to understand the health and well-being of Black people and conditions that shape their lives. Instead of comparing Black people to white people, we examine life expectancy differences among the Black population in different places. This method reveals the locales where Black people are thriving. Researchers often sloppily compare rates of home ownership, educational attainment, income, and mortality without attending to past and present discrimination that intended to create disparities. Consequently, broad national averages void of context policy and local context camouflage the very real progress that's occurring across the country. Still in places like Jefferson County, Ohio, the average black person lives 33 years fewer than Manassas Park, Virginia, and Weld County, Colorado. That gap is roughly equivalent to 100 years of progress in living standards, medical science, and public health. Black people are not a monolith. They have widely different outcomes in very different places. Local contexts matter as black people do. Lower life expectancy in counties and metro areas across the country suggests that people are losing battles against racism. But geographic areas where black people are thriving offer more than hope. People's civic actions are delivering positive change. What accounts for such vast differences? Life expectancy, a cumulative measure of health and well-being, summarizes both the biological and non-biological influences in our lives. Because race is a sociological construct and not a biological one, we should assume disparities in life expectancy represent differences in non-biological influences on our lives. Our current life expectancy data suggests that people are breaking down specific social conditions that influence longevity, giving real reason for optimism. Using a common machine learning algorithm to select variables and rank their importance, the index identifies 13 social conditions that predict black life expectancy. Many of those one might expect, such as income, education, housing, and family composition. Others are more surprising, including the top predictor of high black life expectancy, larger shares of foreign-born black residents. One standard deviation above the mean in this variable adds one year to predicted life expectancy. For instance, Brooklyn, New York is in the 89th percentile of life expectancy at 78.5. The more than 43% of black residents in Kings County who are immigrants places it in the 98th percentile among all counties. The cause for this interpretation is unclear. It may be pure composition effect in that foreign-born black Americans enjoy better health than the native black population. Though this data points to a larger question, is less exposure to U.S. racism good for your health? On the other end of the spectrum, a surprising predictor of low black life expectancy is religious membership. 
Keeping in mind that all the social determinants that show to be significant in our study are correlational, not causal. Revoking a church membership will not automatically add years to a person's life. The challenge is understanding why religious adherence is associated with lower life expectancy. Churchgoers are more likely to be obese and, on the surface, asking Jesus to take the wheel may negate any agency we have in influencing our health outcome. We also know that place-based bias that comes out of the wash of housing devaluation hurts the families and institutions, including churches, in these locales. More research is needed to uncover the conditions and behaviors underlying all the variables that strongly influence life expectancy. The fact that we realize progress in stagnation in black life expectancy in different places makes clear that people have agency. The gains and losses reflect that. When we take an overly optimistic or pessimistic view of the state of black America and treat black people as a monolith, we don't see localized stories of growth, determination, and thriving. The diversity of places where black people are thriving suggests that it has something to do with black people themselves. In places like Montgomery County, Maryland, individuals, civil rights groups, organizers, and politicians are dismantling the architecture of inequality that takes away years of life. That said, we still need to examine and throw away the overly optimistic position on race relations that the country has moved beyond slavery, Jim Crow racism, and the array of discriminatory policies and their long-term effects. People who hold this perspective contend that America is a level playing field and that with effort, black people can achieve anything a white person can. But locales that post life expectancies under 70 perform poorly on environment or institutional indicators like the air and school quality, suggesting that life is harder in some places due to systemically racist forces. In Lowndes County, Alabama, where Montgomery is the county seat, life expectancy is 68.5. In Greenwood, Mississippi, is 67.3. In Salem, Oregon, life expectancy is 64.4. It's also worth speculating on seemingly obvious reasons why some cities like Jackson, Mississippi, don't post higher rates than 72.6. Jackson has higher home ownership rates than most places, 94th percentile, and a higher percentage of black ownership, 59th percentile. But the recent water crisis shows how local politics of Mississippi play out in lower investments in the city's water infrastructure, which plays out in other municipal services that impact life expectancy like education. Social reforms move slowly, wrote W.E.B. Du Bois suggesting that we must learn from our circumstances in ways that reject intemperance and blame. When right is reinforced by calm but persistent progress, we somehow all feel that in the end it must triumph. Society is toiling with the same struggles around racism that Du Bois faced at the turn of the 20th century. Nonetheless, we must take the time to recognize empirical signs of progress and not rush towards unsophisticated, untruthful narratives of hopelessness or blind ignorance that remove or dismiss our agency. A path of progress demands that we have a clear view of the social, political, and economic landscape in which we live. Recognizing progress and defeats will have us see the very real capacity for future change. The assumption, backed with data, that black people in places with higher life expectancy had a hand in their outcomes should inspire us to seek change in places where discrimination is robbing people of years of life. That was the article, Life Expectancy Proves How Far Black Americans Have Come. 
It was written by Andrew Perry, published November 23, 2022, and found at Time Magazine's time.com website. I've got one more reading related to health care. This is from the Baltimore Afro-American and its afro.com website. The title is, How Can Black Men Advocate for Themselves in the Doctor's Office? It was written by Terrence Banks and published May 6, 2023. Healthcare for black men is suffering from a curious disconnect between doctor and patient, according to healthcare experts. African-American men today often wonder what they should do when they feel that their symptoms or pain are not being taken seriously by doctors. A recent Cleveland Clinic study concluded that 60% of men do not regularly visit doctors, with many only making it to a physician's office when they are sick. When they arrive, they may be one in a bustling line of patients to be seen by an overworked doctor, and in some cases their symptoms are dismissed and dismissed again, sometimes with fatal results. Founder and director of Georgetown University's Center for Men's Health Equity, Derek Griffith, has concluded that one reason black men don't frequently visit the doctor's office is tied to them feeling like they aren't getting needed information. Others leave the encounter feeling disregarded and discouraged from returning. We need to put more of the onus and responsibility on the healthcare system to do a better job of being proactive and making men feel comfortable, creating spaces where they feel comfortable, probing for questions that black men may have as patients, not putting all the onus on the patient to be the doctor. Griffith said that men are more likely to listen to the opinions of those closest to them, and sometimes the doctor's treatment suggestions do not match up with the opinions of family and loved ones. Part of the task of the doctor is to make sure that they probe for those kinds of things, Griffith said. What have other people told you about what they think is going on? What have other people suggested is going on? How have others suggested treating it? Doctors should ask patients questions in order to reinforce or correct those notions. There are several things that black men can do themselves when they do not feel like they're being taken seriously by their doctors. Patients should create a list of questions for their doctor prior to the medical visit. George Ann Vartarella, founder and president of Patient Advocacy MD and a board regents member at Georgetown University School of Medicine said men should not leave the office without getting and understanding the answers to those questions. She also suggested that men, especially those facing serious illnesses, bring extra support. You've got to bring support, and I think women are more cultured to bring support, Vartarella said. Especially when a patient has a serious illness, they don't often hear, digest, or understand everything that's said. Doctors are not always the best at communicating the rationale behind their treatments for patient symptoms. To better understand their reasoning, Griffith said that men must be more willing to ask probing questions. Dr. Otis Brawley, an oncologist at Johns Hopkins University, worked in emergency rooms and urgent care clinics from 1985 to 1995. He said that due to an increasing shortage of doctors in primary care, the quality of care for all patients has gone down. If you're working at a family medicine or general internal medicine office, the expectation of the people who run that office and employ the doctor is that the doctor needs to see four patients an hour, said Brawley. Brawley believes that men should go to the doctor more regularly instead of when they're only having serious problems. 
Doing this allows men to establish a relationship with their doctors and ease tension when a medical concern arrives. That was the article, How Can Black Men Advocate for Themselves in the Doctor's Office? It was written by Terrence Banks and published at the Afro.com website on May 6, 2023. My next reading on today's program is a commentary. The title is, What My Dad, Malcolm X, Taught Me. It was written by Ilyasa Shabazz. It was published in the May-June 2023 edition of Essence magazine. The subtitle of the commentary is, The Daughter of the Human Rights Leader Reflects on the Man Behind the Public Image. Today I am older than my father, Malcolm X, ever was. For the rest of my life, I will be older than my father ever had the opportunity to be, living the experiences age brings that he never had the chance to enjoy. As I look back on my life, I see how profoundly different it has been from his. The America in which he lived for a mere 39 years until his death in 1965 is one that I cannot ever truly understand, despite having spent my life thinking, writing, and speaking about it. During my father's lifetime, daily life for black Americans was far more brutal and unjust than it is today. I went to prep school. I rode horses. I travel freely. I've lived in an America and a world forever altered by my father. Many images the public saw of Malcolm X were of him responding to heinous acts, bombings, murders, fires, and attack dogs. He metabolized and articulated the grief and anger of black Americans facing harsh discrimination, violence, and terror in their own country. The media portrayed him as an aggressive, provocative leader. If he was provocative, it was because he was pointing out harrowing realities that America at large was too fearful or unwilling to confront. Certainly, that was going to be provocative. But my father wasn't led by anger. He was filled with faith, love, and compassion. And on a day-to-day basis, he didn't speak in the same manner in which he spoke to a crowd. That wasn't the Malcolm my family and I knew. The man we knew was warm, gentle, and empathetic, with a famously electric smile. He was a family man. I remember his great sense of humor and that he loved jazz music, literature, and possibility. He studied history, nature, and the arts. He had a butterfly collection. He read poetry to his wife. He was a bright intellect influenced by his upbringing. His parents, Reverend Earl and Louise Little, were members of Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, which commanded millions of followers worldwide in the 1920s. Just as his parents had passed down their values to Malcolm, he did the same with my sisters and me. My father's faith enabled him to believe in the resilience of the human spirit. He taught us that self-love, one that comes from an education and history based on facts, is crucial and allows us to love others in turn. We believed in the oneness of God and hence the oneness of humanity and never relied on others to determine our self-worth. Committing harm against another is essentially the same as committing harm against ourselves. Malcolm brought human rights into the civil rights movement, and that is a legacy we can see clearly in the contemporary language and ideology of activism. Recently, while reflecting on my own Hodge, I reread the letter that my father wrote while on his. It moved me to tears. Never have I been so highly honored, my father writes in the letter, and never has such honor and respect made me feel more humble and unworthy. 
who would believe that such blessings could be heaped upon an American Negro? It made me weep to read both his reality as a Negro and his elation at being granted deference and peace outside of the perverse racism of America. While on his hodge, for the first time in his life, Malcolm stood equal with all men to share the dignity and respect, as well as the rights and privileges of first-class citizenship. He knew that upon his return to America, there would be danger waiting for him. But he returned anyway because he believed in his mission to insist America live up to her promise of liberty and justice for all. To the public, the letter functions as a historical document written by a great human rights advocate, a brilliant thinker, and a political strategist. But it's also the heartfelt thoughts of a young man on a spiritual journey, having profound personal experiences as he circled the globe searching for solutions to the human condition. He was received as a worthy peer by kings, presidents, prime ministers, and potentates alike. He met with African heads of state to internationalize the plight of African Americans. World leaders listened to his ideas for ending the atrocities caused by war and unequal distribution of the world's wealth. My favorite speech that my father ever gave took place at the Oxford Union debate in 1964. It was within a year of his assassination. One reason that the speech has always appealed to me is that it was not a response to a particular brutal act. Often his news bites were a reaction and broadcast without context. But in this debate, he focused on building a better world. When I was younger, I would watch and rewatch the recording. In the video, my father stands before a crowd of students and faculty. He is tall, distinguished, dapper and handsome, his face flitting in turns between a wry grin and a gentle, somber stoicism. He is surrounded by engaged young scholars who are attentive, cheering, applauding, learning. As with the letter Malcolm wrote from the Hodge, I love this speech because it shows my father for who he really was. As a young girl, I envisioned that it was the kind of conversation he would have had with me as I got older had he still been with us. He would have appealed to my humanity as he does in this debate. He would have encouraged my sisters and me to love and to be our best selves. He would have wanted me to help make a difference, to be a voice for those who cannot speak for themselves. Now, decades after his death, my dad is still waiting for the justice he deserves, not just as the leader of a movement, but as a citizen and a human. History has made my father into an icon, but he was always just a man, a young man who knowingly put his life on the line because, above all, he believed in justice and he believed until his last breath our capacity to love. That was the commentary, What My Dad, Malcolm X, Taught Me. It was written by Ilyasa Shabazz and published in the May-June 2023 edition of Essence magazine. I'm going to wrap up today's program with a book excerpt that was published in the May 2023 edition of Harper's Magazine. The title of the book is Easily Slip Into Another World by Henry Threadgill and Brent Edwards. The book is Threadgill's memoir. In this excerpt, Threadgill, a saxophonist and composer, reflects on meeting the great musician and band leader, Duke Ellington. The title of this excerpt is Compose Yourself. Toward the end of July 1971, I go to see Duke Ellington with his orchestra. This is at the High Chaparral, the big ballroom where I perform with the Dells near 77th Street and Stony Island on the South Shore. 
There are hundreds of people in the crowd. It's a lavish affair. I know my way around the place, so I slip backstage during intermission, hoping to be able to say something to him, just introduce myself and tell him how much I appreciate his music. But I get back there, and there are all these people swarming around, men in tuxedos and high-society women in gowns studded with diamond brooches. Ellington is holding court as only he can, talking to two or three fans at once. Oh, yes, my dear, it's been so long. When was the last time? In Paris? And how is Horace doing these days? Is he still living in Antibes? You enjoyed the Gutella suite. Yes, Mr. Gonsalves is indeed in fine fettle this evening. I'm so deeply honored that you appreciated our efforts. I stand there for a minute watching him work the crowd. I can't get within ten feet. Oh, well, I think. I get it. He's surrounded by money. It's obvious that I'm not supposed to be in the middle of this scrum. All these refined people in their fancy clothes, brazenly shoving one another to get a word in with the great man. The crowd ebbs and flows, and then the current shifts, and I find myself propelled a little closer. I don't even realize that he's noticed me, but all of a sudden he reaches out and grabs me and pulls me next to him. He's got his arm tightly around my waist, like he's about to drag me onto the dance floor for a waltz. I think, what the hell is this? But he's got me, and he's still talking to all these people, not missing a beat in the multiple simultaneous conversations he's having. He doesn't look at me. He just keeps chatting in that debonair way of his. Ah, yes, the weather in Newport is lovely. We just played there two weeks ago. Finally, he looks over at me, still clutching me by the waist. I lean back, away from him, stunned by his attention and a little petrified, too. So he asks, what do we do? Just like that, I gape at him, astonished to encounter the royal we. I have no idea how to introduce myself. Ellington looks away and continues the conversation with someone else in the crowd. The only thing I know immediately is that I'm not going to tell him that I'm a composer. I'm certainly not going to say that. So when he turns back to me, I say, mm, I play woodwinds. My answer serves only to annoy him. I know that, he says. I think to myself, how could you possibly know that I play saxophone? He looks me in the eye. And what else? And then he looks away again, still talking to people around us, still holding me close. After a few more exchanges, he turns back to me. He's waiting for an answer, and I'm in his thrall. I confess. Well, I write music sometimes. Oh, Ellington exclaims with mock surprise, hugging me tighter. We write music sometimes, do we? I don't know what to say. He's got me, and he's talking, and he's moving and dragging me with him, and the crowd is pressing in around us. Somehow he maneuvers us towards his dressing room door, smooth-talking the aristocrats all the while. Then, in a single motion, he enters the dressing room and pulls me inside with him. The door closes and we're alone. Word was, Duke always kept a piano in his dressing room when he was on the road. As we spin in through the door, he's pulling me backward into the room, and before I even realize what's happening, he turns me around and sits me down at the bench. Finally, he releases his grip on my waist and takes a step back to sit down on a couch behind me. Leisurely, he takes out a cigarillo and lights it and takes a hard look at me. So, let's hear some of our music, shall we? I'm sitting there looking over my shoulder at him, wondering how he flipped me down in front of the piano. I'm paralyzed. 
It does occur to me to play something I'd been working on around then, a piece called Melon, after my son. But I can't even lift my hands up to the keyboard. Duke cracks up. But I can tell he's not making fun of me. He gets it. He can see that I'm made nervous by who he is. He rises from the couch and puts a hand on my shoulder. I know, he says, smiling. I understand. You can stay, right? Of course I'm planning to stay for the second half. Yeah, I'm staying. Let's go back out, he says. It's time. He takes me out and gets me a spot where I can watch the band from the wings. And when he gets ready to hit, he checks to see if I'm still there. I'm standing right to the side of Harry Carney. I place myself there deliberately to get a peek at what he's doing on the baritone. That's when Ellington looks over at me with a gleam in his eye and counts off the band. We write music sometimes, do we? I'm standing there, listening to them launch into the Togo Brava Suite, and it occurs to me that maybe it isn't such a bad thing that I froze. Maybe it's lucky I was starstruck. Look what happened to Billy Strayhorn. He was a beast, a genius. He was beyond category, and he got swept up into Ellington's world. What if Duke had made me an offer to work with him as an arranger? I have a feeling that if he'd heard the music I was working on, he might well have. I wouldn't have been able to say no. I'm glad that didn't happen, I tell myself. I'm glad I didn't even have to run that risk. I love him madly, but I can't go work for Duke Ellington. I want to lead my own band and play my own music. I need to work for me. That was an excerpt from the book, Easily Slip Into Another World, which was published in the May 2023 edition of Harper's Magazine. That particular book excerpt was titled Compose Yourself, and it was written by Henry Threadgill and Brent Hayes Edwards. That's all the time I have this week. If you would like to replay this program or listen to past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcast or at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour.